Hey there, and welcome to Upfront, a podcast that features conversations with business leaders, entrepreneurs, and company founders who are doing amazing things in their industry. I love success stories like this. It's the kind of story where you leave one career to start another, learn the ropes, and get guidance along the way, and put in the hard work and grit that ultimately helps you to achieve your dream. That's exactly what Carl Zwanelli, the founder and CEO of Nuovo Pasta, did. Carl shares his incredible story of working in banking and then one day leaving to start Nuovo Pasta. But he did his homework and worked in a local restaurant and learned how to make pasta from scratch. In fact, he saw the pasta machine in the window, went in and asked the owner to teach him. The rest, as they say, is history. Nuovo Pasta now employs more than 275 people and its refrigerated pastas and products are sold in specialty stores, supermarkets, and warehouse clubs in all 50 states, Mexico, and the Caribbean. Head to your local grocery store and you can bet Nuovo is there. Carl is also the president of the International Pasta Organization and is the past chair of the National Pasta Association. Needless to say, he knows a thing or two about pasta. Carl says it takes a leap of faith to start a company, and like the Nike tagline says, just do it. We talk about this and his love of doodling, how to convince investors that your idea will work, and the power of intention. Let's get up front with Carl Zwanelli from Nuovo Pasta. Carl, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me, and what a great pleasure it is to be with you today. And likewise, I'm looking forward to uh, learning more about you and, of course, all things Nuovo Pasta and how you got to be where you are. Um, And to do that, I'd like to go back to the beginning and learn more about you as a person and the choices, events, and the lifestyle that have all helped you to get where you are today. So, First things first, where did you grow up? Interesting. Um, I'm still in the process of growing up. It was uh, <laughs> We all are. Yeah. I was raised um, from my early years in New Rochelle, New York. Okay. And New Rochelle, New York, um, in the area that I was raised, uh, the part of Nourishell in New York had a lot of uh, real cultural um, aspects to it, I think, that defined who uh, I am and who I've become. And uh, in Nourishell, uh, there was a large immigration uh, prior to World War II and up until about World War II of, uh, of Italian-Americans. Okay. Matter of fact, they had their own section um, of Nourishell, which was called the West End of Nourishell. And uh, my mother's family, who had uh, immigrated from um, Italy and from a, a southern area, which was called um, Calabria, still is, yep. uh, which is a region in the south, which was very rich with a particular type 
of uh, Italian culture that you know dated back to um, you know the Greeks um, inhabiting it. So Italy, in and of itself, is made up of a collection of different regions. Um, at one point, on and off, owned again by different foreign countries. Countries before the peninsula itself became a country. And many of those immigrants that came here never really waved the um, banner, uh, tricolor banner of green, white, and red of Italy. They waved the banner of the the metaphorical banner of the region. Mm-hmm. And so Calabria, there was a lot of uh, what, we, what were called Calabrese Paisani that had um, immigrated to that area of the world. And it was this particular type of culture. Um, my father, who was uh, a New Yorker and whose Italian side had immigrated from Italy as well, the patriarch of that family came from Venice. Mm. And the Venetian uh, culture could not have been any different uh, from the Calabrese culture in terms of it being quote unquote Italian, um, because it was almost on the exact opposite sides of, uh, the peninsula, mm. uh, Calabria being almost the, 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 the furthest Southwestern area, um, and Venice being almost the most Northern, um, Eastern area. And very Germanic in some ways, um, Austrian in another, yep. um, as opposed to Mediterranean Greek influence. So I'm getting I'm getting a, you know a little bit too much detail right now. But so I was born in Rochelle to answer the question directly, and 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 it really influenced my culture because um, I grew up in, in a household there uh, of bilingual speaking uh, folks, my grandparents, and uh, really grew up in a culture that was was rooted in the old world, although I was firmly um, based and planted in the new world. Yeah, it's interesting. So many people who immigrated to this country have that experience where, you know, the old country still exists in, in, in your new environment, right? And, you know, a big part of that, obviously, which we'll get into later, um, certainly is is food and the language and so forth. But, um, but you know, growing up in New Rochelle, you had these old school or, you know, your, your, your Italian um, heritage, certainly a part of your life. But how, how would you describe life in New Rochelle when you grew up there? Um, the area of New Rochelle that I grew up in, although it was very coastal, um, we were in walking distance to the Long Island Sound, the particular area was very um, inner city at the same time. Uh, you know, the main street itself, uh, if, if I can use some, some sort of cultural metaphor that maybe people might know, it was really sort of Saturday Night Fever, um, John Travoltaville. Okay. Uh, yeah. When I was growing up in, in that area. So um, although my both my parents were college educated, my father was a white collar um, executive in, in uh, uh, financial services world, and my mother was a language teacher. Uh, I was in this area where not all of the folks, or probably maybe even most in, in the community that I was raised, had that sort of um, 
counterbalance of old world with, you know, moving forward into the Americas. So my father sent me to um, the high school outside of the area, which was called Iona Prep, which is in the north end of Nourishell, very close to Scarsdale, where a lot of um, uh, established, let's say, I think, uh, families that have more than second generation immigrants had, had uh, moved to. So um, Nourishell itself um, had counterbalances, but the area that I was raised in, in my formative years really was in that uh, almost inner city um, area. Mm. And so you had mentioned what your your, your parents had, had done for work, and um, we'll talk a little bit about that. But I, I, I do want to kind of um, understand, you know, brothers, sisters, were, the, were you the only child in the house or? No, there were... Um, it was an interesting household um, in as much as our grandparents lived in the same house. It wasn't a two family home. Mm-hmm. They certainly had their own area, um, but I had uh, three other siblings. So we're, I'm one of four. Okay. So at the dinner table every night where we ate as a family every night together, there were eight of us always wow. at the table. Um, I was the second oldest. I had an older sister, a younger brother, and a uh, younger sister. So two girls and a boy. And as the first boy, I guess there was this primogenitor type thing that was even, you know, um, going past the first um, level of immigration where I was the first son. So it was kind of a, a little place of, uh, of deference that I think, and I, I really didn't understand it at the time, but was probably given to me at that point in my life. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I mean, I have a younger brother and, you know, first, you know, I was the first and, and it, and it's always like, you know, all the, all the hopes lie within, you know, you know, you, you're the first son. So I, I understand a little bit what that, that feels like. You know, you said your father was uh, in financial services, worked as an executive, and your your mom was a um, a language teacher. Did where did she do that? Was she in the local school system teaching language, or um, she did to teach for many years in local and in, in um, also in the private local um, school system. So uh, it was um, usually secondary school type of teaching. She had um, aspirations of being a translator at the UN. Mm. Um, after a couple of children and needing to um, play the role of mom as well, um, she, I think she understood that at that point or believed that um, you know her education could be better used um, in teaching mm. rather than translating. And what kind of values did your parents instill in you then that you still carry with you today? I think the family instilled um, these family values, but I'll say Christian values, which I think transcend Christianity. Mm-hmm. I think they it is sort of the spirituality of um, kindness, love generosity and compassion yeah. um, is at the root of a lot. And um, although a Southern Italian has um, 
can be quite emotional, and I'll use that word as a euphemism. Um, they there was always this foundation of love, mm. um, and almost everything was done with love, whether it be the preparation of food um, or um, how we treated each other and everything in between. Yeah. That's so important, you know, to take that from the household or, you know, the home environment right out into the world. Right. I think that's, those are some, some great values for sure. What were your childhood aspirations or what did you want to be when you grew up? You know, it's interesting that you say that and that same exact, well, a, a, a form of that question was asked me, asked of me when I was 13 years old. Mm. And I can remember it being asked of me by my uncles. And as I said, you know, it was an interesting family dynamic in as much as on my maternal side, I had five uncles and um, four of them were very present in my life. One wasn't because he, was, he moved to the West Coast, but the others, because they were from this classic Italian close-knit family were often at the house visiting their parents who happened to live in my house. Mm. So my uncles were there and I would see them during the, the course of a day when I get home from school, they had either left work early or left on their lunch hour to be at home and, and I would see them. And, there was, and we would often get together as a family and there was one particular summer event that was held at one of my uncle's homes and on their patio, at a barbecue, they were all seated out there. And one of my uncles said to me when the others were present, so Carl, what do you want to do when you grow up or get older? Mm. And um, I said, you know, I don't know, but what I do know is I want to have my own business. Mm. And I remember that and I've recounted this story often um, that I wanted to have my own business. And, uh, and almost every action that I made going to that point was to that end. Yeah. It's almost like, you know, you hear about the power of setting intentions, right? You probably didn't really know it at the time, but that was setting the intention for the future, perhaps. Yeah, you have to be careful with how you think, right? And what you think about and what you, you say you want, because um, like it or not, you may get it. Oh, uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> a little bit more careful nowadays, but I was delighted that I said it and, and what was in me because I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Obviously, I've, I've held positions um, at, at companies before I started my own, um, mm -hmm. and I also had my own landscaping business while I was in high school. Um, but, you know, in between that and um, the starting of New Ovo Pasta Productions, um, I, ha I held positions at, at some corporations. So, um, yeah, you're right about that. Yeah. You, the, the intention gets you there, for yeah. sure. I, I laughed about it to myself because um, when we got a new dog, I, I said, you know, I really want uh, a, a female dog. I want a puppy. And I just want, you know, a, a little buddy that never leaves my side. She's become super attached. So you got to be careful. <laughs> almost too, yeah, you know, almost too yeah. attached. <laughs> you know, to the opposite of that, at one point after our first dog that my wife and I had, um, I said, you know what? We really need a big dog on this property that's going to be able to guard the property, maybe even be a little intimidating looking, which is mm. not 
to the to the core of what my belief system is. But you know, I visualized this, and we 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 did get that type of a dog, um, and it was a Rhodesian Ridgeback, uh, large, and this one um, had a demeanor which was little ornery, mm. and uh, it not only was it aggressive, it was aggressive to one of my children, and. Uh, you know, we weren't able to keep it in our in our home. Yeah. So, you know, you have to be very careful again with what you're what you're aiming towards. Oh, yeah. You could get it. What you put out there for sure can come back. You go to high school, um, you, you graduate. Where did you go off to college? Um. <laughs> I, I laugh because, um, you know, contrary to some counsel that my dad had given me, um, I, I uh, went to a college that was not too far away from my home, which is Pace University. Okay. Uh, which was a great school. It was a great business school in the area, um, which I'm very happy that I went there. And um, I, I was a marketing major. Mm -hmm. and got involved early on in a cooperative education program. And I am a big proponent of cooperative education, which um, some of the more forward-thinking business schools um, have uh, not only incorporated into their curriculum, but, you know, it's at the core of their curriculum. Mm -hmm. Some of the best business schools out there. Basically, what happens there is you're, you're working not in an internship position, but actually working for a company while you're going to school, sort of apprenticing more than interning. Yep. And um, I had a, an opportunity to work with Citibank. And uh, it was it, like most cooperative education, it, you know, it starts out as um, part time. And shortly afterwards, they were looking for full timers and they asked if I wanted to work full time. And I was only a sophomore at that point at the university in New York. And I said to them that, uh, you know, I'm going to school. And they said, well, that's OK. Um, you know, we'll we'll help you with that. Wow. And yeah. And um, and I did. And I started working full time, but I continued to go to school full time. I went to school full time at night and on the weekends. Wow. Uh, halfway through sophomore year. So for two and a half years, I was working full time and going to school full time. Didn't have um, my sophomore and junior year summer to myself. <laughs> I was working full time and I was OK with that. Um, you know, I was really looking and chomping at the bit to get into uh, the professional world. Yeah. And um, I'm, uh, although I knew that eventually I would have my own business, I think that there was no better training ground than to be with a corporation because I knew that the business that I was going to have was going to grow. So to understand the culture that a corporation had is a big deal for me. That's quite the commitment as a sophomore. I, my, my next question was going to be what kind of student were you? And I, I think I don't even have to ask it by knowing that 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 commitment you made as a sophomore to you know going to school at night and doing the job during the day, but I, I guess I'll ask it. Well, you know, looking back, were were you a good student or did you? Derek, that was a great question. I would say a good student. Well, um, it depends on how you describe or or what 
measures a good student. If a 4.0 measures a good, stu- a good student, <laughs> which quite frankly, I don't believe it does. Yep. Can ask my, my kids who are 4.0s. <laughs> um, I'm not saying they're not good students, but what I'm saying is I think a good student is someone who's able to uh, absorb the information and education yep. that they're getting and apply it, not take a test and put it back on paper. Yeah. So how do you utilize it? So let me answer that question. My first year, um, if, if grades were a indication, um, or even how I would apply it, both of them were indications. I was a horrible student. Um, my first year away, um, I think I embraced the independence of college life, um, which included uh, partying a lot, um, mixers and all of the above. Um, and, uh, and to that point, when my father saw my grades, he said, that's not happening anymore. <laughs> um, and something's going to have to change. And quite frankly, it did. Um, I became probably a B plus student. Um, in after that, in almost every class I ever took, except my final course, which I'll tell you about a little bit, um, capstone marketing course. And I, uh, I, so I, I think I was a really good student because I can tell you about things that I've learned. And most people say, I never use anything that I learned. I did. Um, not all of them were the business things that I learned. Some of them were from, from my uh, philosophy courses. Um, others were things that resonated in me by certain adjunct professors who were coming out of the business world to teach, which I you know, give anecdotes of. But, but yeah, I was, I was um, from, the, from the perspective of both grades later on and, a, um, and, and from absorbing the knowledge, I think a pretty, pretty darn good student, all in all efforts. And then what happened with that, Mark, that last course? So at that point, I was fully involved in marketing and managing. I, at my senior year, um, I had risen to a point where I was an officer of Citibank. I was the youngest officer in New York. Wow. Um, at age 21. And I had hired and was managing. Uh, well, I interviewed 60 people for a 30 person um, um, investment telemarketing unit for, that I was managing at that point in time. And um, I was the head uh, for our thesis project um, for a capstone marketing course that was taught by the dean of marketing. Now, he didn't know that I uh, had already been and I didn't tell him working um, uh, in the business world. And um, we put together a really good marketing plan, the four of us on this team, uh, for a product uh, that was a drinkable yogurt in 1980, I don't know, just 87, I guess it was. Okay. This is before, this is before any of that was around. Um, and it was a concept product with marketing that went behind it. And uh, it gave us a D plus. Wow. Yeah. And I have to say it was demoralizing at the time for me for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons why it was demoralizing was um, I was selected to be the, the lead on this project. 
Um, and I kind of let my co-team down. Mm. Um, demoralizing in a way because I didn't get it. You know, I had already made it to a level that it would take years for people to achieve coming out of university, both in dollars being earned as well as, uh, and by the way, I lived um, I, uh, at the dorms in the international, um, just to be close to the school in international dorms at the time, made a lot of close friends at that, at that point. Um, but it was demoralizing. It really was. And it was my first taste that I continued to have for many, many years of uh, being humbled. Mm. It was also a time that reinforced my desire to have my own company because I was being graded or judged by someone who had never achieved even what I believe I had already achieved, nor had my cre um, creative instincts or, or entrepreneurial instincts. And, um, and I don't wish that person any malice, but, you know, um, you know, fast forward to 2023, where there's a company that exists today that employs close to 280 people, um, approaching a hundred million in revenue, uh, with a brand out there, albeit, um, still growing the brand, but certainly, a, um, a, an established manufacturing company. You know, I've been vindicated, if, if one were to say. <laughs> I, I, it was my first taste in many, in many experiences of, uh, which I'm sure, I guess, is still being uh, tested on me of humility. Yeah. As my wife will tell you, it's not one of my strong suits. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I'm getting it. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that's a great story because, you know, sometimes especially as as a student you have these great ideas and you you believe in them and they can work and nothing i i believe nothing really works right out of the box sometimes you have to iterate right it's in and when you're being judged purely on academia or you know in the in the classroom setting on something it's like you know come on but it, what a success story, right? It's like, hey, I got a D plus on this 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 assignment. I was the team leader, and now now look where I am today. So, yeah, you've been vindicated. You've been vindicated. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. So, I I mean, there there's probably such a long career path, but I I, I want to talk about you, you. You were at Citigroup or Citibank, you know the the collegiate time when you got out of college did you stay with them what's interesting you say citigroup citigroup didn't exist at that time there was okay just the bank as a matter of fact it was something called the glass steagall act which um got it kept banking from doing um things that other financial services companies could yeah before it became a city group and um well i was at citibank uh, I'm trying to remember the exact question again, if, if you could. Did you did you leave or when you graduated college, did you stay with Citibank? Was that like your your first job out of college? I did for a bit, but um, I, I quickly moved over to what later became Merrill Lynch. OK, I, I, I um, joined a, a Shearson Lehman Hutton and um, which 
you know, was an amalgamation of a bunch of companies, which later became, you know, went back to their original name, Lehman Brothers, which doesn't exist any longer after the um, the 2008 scenario. But Shearson and then Lehman and E.F. Hutton all merged and they were Shearson, Lehman, Hutton. Um, and the fellow that I was working for, uh, one of the vice presidents there, took a position with Merrill Lynch not too long after I joined the company. And he asked me to come with him. So I ultimately went to Merrill Lynch. And and, and what did you do at Merrill Lynch? Were you on the, the trading floor or what was your uh, career path? I, I was, uh, he, the fellow that I was working with was a, uh, a broker, an investment, um, uh, what, what is known as a stock broker. Yeah. Or they don't, you know, contrary to people's understanding, they most don't have a, a seat on the floor. What they do is they have an office and they trade and those calls go to the, the folks on, on, on the floor. Now, certainly there are people that, you know, trade their own account or others that are right there on the floor. But this particular fellow was one of the top. I think he was one of the top six at one point within the company, which, you know, had a couple thousand and today they have tens of thousands of stockbrokers. So, um, extremely high net worth individuals. And I was helping manage his portfolio with him and talk to the existing customer base, you know, grooming me to maybe take over his portfolio at some point. Something you, I you know, took from the website, which I thought was such a, it's such a great way to tell the story. It began in 1989 with a small imported pasta machine a wooden rolling pin and a deep passion for pasta. So tell me how you started Nuovo Pasta. You know, were you sitting at work one day and said, this is it, I've had enough of this and I want to follow my passion or how did that all start? Well, it's interesting, you know, um, I think it was Winston Churchill who said, never let a great crisis go to waste. (laughs) Yeah, in 1987, um, I had made my way over to, I was still at Shearson Lehman, and there was a, um, a crash. Yeah, market uh, crash. Market crash in October. It was the, was the worst crash that the U.S. had seen since um, 1928, one day fall in the market. There's reasons for it. As a matter of fact, that was a pivotal moment. One of those reasons, not that, which said to me, I can't be in this business any longer. Now, I was okay. I was a young guy and I had my job and I was fine. And quite frankly, um, um, I wasn't personally, professionally in, in, impacted by that. Um, but it was that pivotal time where there was an oncoming recession of the 90s that was being forecasted. And um, I knew that this was going to be a time for me or the time perhaps, right? Wasn't married, uh, didn't have a mortgage, that if I was going to start a business, this might be the best time. Mm. And I had done some research on recession resistant industries, among them being food although food in and of itself isn't recession resistant, which I didn't get at the time, but certainly consumer packaged goods, what's sold in retail tends to be more 
um, as opposed to what's sold in restaurants. We know in recessionary periods, people don't dine out as much, but they certainly still have to eat. So the retail is big. Yeah. At that time, per capita consumption of pasta was really increasing in the 1980s. It mm. had a big boom in the United States. And it wasn't just be being consumed by an Italian ethnic community around the country. It was really being embraced as this new nouveau cuisine that was uh, being served all over and, and, and trattorias were opening up where when I was growing up, I don't think there was anything called a trattoria in uh, the U.S. It was an Italian restaurant. It was the red and white checkered tablecloth restaurant or it was the northern Italian, which really doesn't mean much in terms of a cuisine where the only difference was um, red and white check, checkered tablecloth a la Lady in the Tramp. Uh, <laughs> versus um, Northern Italian where the waiters wore tuxedos. Yeah. Uh, you know, the cuisine might have been a little bit more elevated, but just the same type of product on a fancier plate. But um, but people were eating a lot more pasta. They were eating it at home more, they were eating it at restaurants more. And there was this big Italian boom that took place where, you know, the, the new Italian restaurateur had a long you know, ponytail and uh, a long apron down to their ankles, right? And uh, it was a completely different look. Yeah. And uh, the the uh, uh, traditional curly mustached, big, you know, um, white uh, hatted uh, pizzeria chef, completely different, right? Anyway, so, but but numbers, data showed that it was increasing. And I had done a lot of research, National Pasta Association, um, uh, was was good enough to share some data with me. And I also saw something else, Derek. Nestle, because I, of course, was um, exposed to financial data, Nestle had just acquired a refrigerated pasta company in New York that was doing, 1986 they did this. And Nestle had acquired a company that was um, um, producing about $6 million in revenue for $36 million. They had acquired this fresh pasta company. Mm. which would later become the America's biggest fresh pasta brand called Buitoni. And I saw this multiple of revenue and I said, wait a minute, there's a, there's a, a there there. Yeah. And uh, decided that that was going to be the business that I was going to get into. There was a, one pivotal moment that really defined me not wanting to be in financial services or what I call the business of money. And that was um, what really um, precipitated it, uh, the, that fall of the market was trading, not on speculation as much as um, trading on margin, where borrowed money was financing a bubble. Um, the equities in someone's stock value, the equity and value would allow someone to get a margin loan to buy more stocks. It's almost like a home equity loan, which fueled the 2008 crisis. This was a stock crisis of the same type of proportion. Mm. And after the collapse, um, I was informed by the person I worked for that I had to go pick up a margin call check or someone's loan was being called and they had to pay up the difference between what was now being called and what the values were of the stock. And I try to, I'll try to abbreviate this as quickly as, as possible, but uh, this person lived on Park Avenue and I had to walk to Park Avenue from the Fifth Avenue Financial Center where I was at the time. 
And uh, when I got to Park Avenue and I went to the seventh floor where this person lived, um, I was surprised that was for the first time that when I got off on the seventh floor of the elevator, where I didn't see a 7A or B or 7F, it was they had the seventh floor. (laughs) (laughs) And um, it was a woman, and I won't go into too many details, but she was the heiress of a publication, a media publication. And she was in her late 70s, and I was ushered in by what appeared to be the butler into a parlor, and this woman came in. And as I mentioned, an older woman, and she sat down at the table and she said, so why are you here? And I said, well, I have to pick up a check because you have a margin call. And she said, what's a margin call? I said, well, you have a margin account. You're trading on margin. She said, what's a margin account? So in other words, she didn't even know she had this. Mm. And at least according to her. And um, her account was being traded, borrowing uh, against it. And she said, well, how much is the check? This is a true story, Derek. She's, and I said to her, a million dollars, 1987. Wow. She was a little, a little shocked. And uh, she took out her checkbook, which was in a blue vinyl case. Um, I don't think they had Coach, you know, branded uh, checkbook covers at that time. <laughs> um, maybe she wouldn't have had it herself, even if it did exist. But this was the same blue vinyl checkbook cover that my mother would keep in her purse when she would, you know, pay for groceries. And she cut a check for a million dollars, which I put into my breast pocket of my suit. And I walked back on Fifth Avenue to my office. A 20 something year old kid um, with a million dollar check in my pocket that I had just taken from the proverbial old lady. And, um, said, this is not the business that I want to be in. Yeah. Yeah. It's like so, one of those defining moments, huh? Yeah. That was sort of a, I guess one could call the tipping point. Mm. And Manhattan at the, in those years didn't look like Manhattan of these years. Um, when one would take a train in from uh, the Northern suburbs and they'd have to go past Harlem, uh, yeah. which wasn't today's Harlem. Uh, and, uh, it was what looked like uh, Beirut, Lebanon with bombed out buildings. Yeah. And that really wasn't a, a cheery type of uh, commute um, every day. So there was a whole bunch of things that really said, wait a minute, there's something that's wrong about this. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, and I left. So there's, that's, that's the, the beginning of the story that, that precedes the rolling pin and passion. <laughs> It's not and on the website. <laughs> when you decide to start Nuovo, what what was like that that moment where you said, "This is it. I'm gonna I'm gonna start this company." And then you started taking pasta lessons, right? In the in what was the the best restaurant in town? Well, yeah, it is. But you know, before that, I went to some investors. I put together a business plan, and they said, "Well." This sounds great, you know, the per capita consumption going up in the, in, in the U.S. marketplace. We see, you know, um, the case studies that you put in, including this Nestle um, mm-hmm. purchase, and it all looks good. But they said to me, what do you know about making pasta? And I said, um, except for watching my grandmother do it, um, nothing. And they said, well, you know, you're going to do this on an industrial basis. And what do you even know about 
making it um, at you know at a level where it's a repetitive basis and and uh, and making a consistently good product. They said, why don't you get some experience and come back? Now, again, I was working at Merrill Lynch and I, I told my father I was going to start a pasta company. Um, and he thought I was completely off my rocker. Mm. Yeah, you I know? was going to say, what was that reaction like? <laughs> well, you know, after I got him seated back on the chair that he fell off of, um, <laughs> he uh, didn't embrace it right away. But what he did said, you know, if you're going to do this, you have to treat it like it's a big company from day one, which was his advice, which resonates um, to me even as we speak today. And um, anyway, so I went to a lot of the factories in um, the New York metropolitan area that were making pasta industrially, and nobody was really making it to the new level that I had seen in Manhattan restaurants, where I had seen um, flavored fettuccine or lobster flavored ravioli on menus. But my mother was the one who said to me, you know, Carl, there's this high-end restaurant that's opened up in Sono, which is South Norwalk, called Pasta Nostra. And the New York Times just gave it an excellent rating. And uh, your father and I went to dinner there, and it was a magnificent dinner, and there were um, celebrities that were eating there um, that we had seen, and she mentioned a couple. She said, you should go down and take a look at it. They've got Italian pasta making equipment in the window. And I did. And I went down there and actually I had taken the day off of uh, Merrill to go down there. And I forget what day it was, week, it could have been a Tuesday. And the door was closed, but there was a fellow standing in the window making pasta. And I knocked on the door and he let me in, happened to be the owner of what is called Pasta Nostra. His name was Joe Bruno. And I told him that, uh, well, I didn't tell him anything. I asked him if um, he needed uh, help um, and I was really looking to learn how to make pasta. And uh, he asked me a few questions and then he said, uh, do you know how to cook? And I said, no, I, I really don't. Do you have any experience cooking? He asked. And I said, no. He said, well, I'll tell you what. He said, uh, you know, from talking to you now for a, a, a little bit of time here, you know, I'm going to give you a shot. But you have to cook with me at night. I need someone to cook with me at night. I'll teach you how to cook if you're willing to. And I said, yes. You know, Incredible. it wasn't wasn't something you know it, it, it's strange because you know although i wanted to learn how to make pasta it wasn't him saying hey if you do this then you can learn how to make pasta and, and me saying no i don't want to do that other thing i just want to make pasta um i accepted what he needed and i learned a lot about food he was a, he's he's a master um regarding his culture of understanding of food and the quality that's needed I mean, anybody who's ever eaten at his restaurant understands that he knows. Well, I'm not going to say anyone. Anyone who uh, gets quality understands. Yeah. So um, so I, 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 uh, I went back to Merrill and I told him I was leaving and they ushered me to the door because um, when you tell a financial services company that you're leaving, I'm not saying for all those who live in the financial services world, this is the case for everybody, but um, oftentimes they think you're going to a competitor and they say, thank you. We, never, we don't lead you any longer. See you later. Yeah. You don't get your two weeks. You get your two minutes, right? <laughs> That's right. And, uh, and yeah, so I was ushered to the door and uh, the very next day I was standing in the window, um, didn't have my pinstripe suit on any longer, but I had a white apron on tied around my waist and in a matter of hours I was covered in flour.
And and I have to say something I've never said before, a, a deep memory, sensory memory of smell, which was uh, dough, mm. which I remember in my household only because my grandmother would make bread once a week. And it was the same scent that I hadn't had um, smelled in many years. And uh, I felt at home in terms of that scent. Mm. That's in, that's actually incredible. You know, that, that, that maybe the comfort you found in that or the nostalgia and, and just, like you said, feeling at home. I guess in a way it was you, 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 you were transported back to where you belong, right, is another way to look at that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I worked there for a year, um, became friends, and I can call this man my friend today, Joe Bruno, who is the owner, who's still a master figure to me. Mm. Um, and uh, I, after a year, I, I approached the investors again, and I showed them some of the product that I had made, and they tasted it, and they said, yeah, you know how to make pasta now. And then they said, well, what do you know about running a manufacturing business? Mm. And I said nothing. He said, why don't you get some experience and come back? And uh, I didn't do that. I wasn't going to spend another year not pursuing what I wanted to. And um, my father and my mother were kind enough to give me a uh, section of their basement allocated uh, where I started making pasta. And... um, that was the beginning of um, of Nuovo. Your first production facility. What an incredible story, though. And what I what I'd love to know is, you know, the the investor relationship. Somebody out there listening who has a dream or or a desire, you know, to go on and and do that thing they want to do. What do you say to them? What kind of advice do you give somebody who's looking to kind of change worlds and and, and go for what, what, what that dream is in their heart or head. Um, the proverbial leap of faith. Mm. And I think um, a large corporation that probably didn't start out like all corporations didn't start out to be. Um, Nike has a slogan, I think they still do, which is just do it. I yeah. think that's what they say. And um, so the advice is just do it. Yeah, so simple. And I would get experience. You know, I spoke about two experiences. One, the uh, cooperative education experience, which um, is sort of like uh, what people would do in any industry, whether the trades, in the trades, right? Yeah. You know, they'd, they'd be a journeyman, apprentice, right? You have to do your apprenticeship someplace. So realize that you need your apprenticeship and your idea is only an idea. But like the investors said to me, what do you know about making pasta? Um, it's one thing to have an idea. You have got to prove it and you've got to build your skill set and your understanding more than just the idea. Now, the idea or the imagination is the place to start, but then you've got to go out and get some experience. So get some experience doing it. And then, as uh, the slogan says, just do it.
tell me about your daily routine. Are you an early riser? Um, I am. And I, although there probably were years where I wasn't, I mean, in some of those college years, um, but I think I always was. I, you know, grew up um, in that household with my grandparents and my grandfather was up early. It was a, you know, 4.30, 5 o'clock riser. And I would get up around the same time as he did. Mm. You know, he was one of my best friends growing up. I'm looking at a picture of him right now, as a matter of fact. And what was, it, what was his name? Well, his, um, his he was known as Bill. <laughs> okay. His name was uh, Guglielmo Maiolo, William Maiolo, um, his Americanized name. Um, so, or Papu, how it, as I used to call him, which was sort of uh, the, the version of daddy for that area that they would, they would, you, a man would be called, although he was my grandfather. Um, Papu, I, I think, uh, uh, or Papu means, means daddy. And long story short, um, he uh, uh, used to rise early in the morning, and so do I. So um, I get up every morning, you know, the old proverbial early to rise, early to bed, right? You know, the rest of it. Yeah. Early to bed, early to rise makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. Um, I think that was Benjamin Franklin who came up with that. May not be right, but I think it is. Uh, I do prescribe to the early to bed, early to rise. Um, so, yeah, I'm up early. And the first thing I try to do is spiritual activities. Yeah, I was going to say, what's your mor- morning ritual? Is it and when you say spiritual activity? What, what is that? Well, um, I like to meditate mm. and uh, certainly all of us being human, the first thing that goes on in our mind immediately upon waking up or even maybe even a little bit before that preceding waking up is uh, planning for the activities of the day. Um, sometimes worrying about the activities of the day, concerning ourselves with what needs to be done, how we're going to do it. Um, where I believe from the knowledge that I've seen that the first thing should be done is try to um, be united with the universal energy of the world, which is how some describe, um, you know, being spiritual mm-hmm. and the universal energy. Um, some people describe that as God. Um, um, other people describe it as the universal intelligence that might be Albert Einstein's um, way of describing it. But there is this central one energy that is in this world that we're all tapped into, the spark of energy. And, um, you know, the ancients, some of the call of that yoga, where it really is not a stretching exercise made to you know, uh, it sounds pejorative uh, to, to yoga. That's that's not. I mean, yoga in its true sense, the word yoga, the Sanskrit word um, is the same word as a yoke that unites two animals together. It means to unite. Yeah. Are you uniting with? You're uniting with the one universal energy that's in all of us. And when you meditate, um, you're really nothing 
is important except that oneness right um yeah we, we the world we live in is called the universe and the universe means one or universal means one and it actually means one song right that we're all singing so you know, I, I got maybe got off a little bit there and uh but uh, my my what i try to do um is is that that's that's a great story because I, I I took yoga for years. Um, unfortunately, the the studio and the instructors I really enjoyed um, doing yoga with had had left. But they would always talk about exactly that that yoga is unity and and tapping into that energy. It wasn't so much about doing downward dog, but you do those poses to get there, which was a, right. a part of it. You know, you're a busy guy. You're running a, a company. Um, what do you do to disconnect? <laughs> That's interesting. Um, what I try not to do um, is do anything that would get me too disconnected, which I'm, <laughs> always, uh, <laughs> which I'm not always uh, successful in. But um, w- what I do to disconnect really is to really focus on yard work for me. Um, I really enjoy working on my property um mm. includes um a, a chicken coop uh with i think 10 um uh, hens or and one rooster um i i love my family i have four children and i am involved in a lot of their extracurricular activities um, some of them are sports or others um i uh uh, we have a boat, so we spend time, which is a very peaceful time together, which we were able to um, get the boat during COVID times, which allowed our family to be on the water by with uh, close together. Yeah. Uh, and um, which is which is fun. So, yeah, that's how I I really unplug. That's that's the, the positive way of unplugging. Very nice. Actually, sometimes I hear like a clicking noise. Is that is that a pen you're clicking? <laughs> I just want to make sure it doesn't. Uh, you know, get... it is, and, and I hope that's a, and maybe that's a nervous habit. Um, it's something else that I do when uh, a lot, which is uh, draw, and, ah. it, and my mind is not off of what we're doing. Yeah, uh, it is almost whenever I'm in a meeting, I'll be doing that, and uh, have some interesting little works just. <laughs> Oh boy! <laughs> now, who is that a drawing of? You know, I think everything that any anything that anyone ever creates a drawing of or um, anything is some sort of uh, self portrait. There you go. So uh, and, uh, that, that the person that I said uh, who taught me how to make pasta was here a couple of days ago last week, taking a tour of what Nuovo has become in terms of. Really, the immensity of scope of, you know, we're producing just a little bit under a half a million pounds a week Mm. right now. And, uh, you know, he was completely blown away by it. And around the office, a lot of people have some of my sketches and drawings of which you heard the clicking pen, which I put down. Uh, Uh, (laughs) And I'm glad you asked that, though, because he he, he said, what are all these ugly faces? And none of them are ugly, but maybe some of them are. They're really caricatures. And I said, they're all self-portraits. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. 
have yeah. to go back and look because I, I I do doodle a lot too sometimes during a meeting and then I you know end up drawing these cartoony looking people and right. I I'll have to go back and look and see if there's any resemblance to me. <laughs> I don't know if there is an exact resemblance, but if if you take a look at what you've drawn, if there's not a physical resemblance, there's a deeper resemblance of what's going on within that doodle. I mean, if you're a chronic doodler like I am, um, you know, people say, wow, you're such a good drawer. Where did you learn how to draw? And I said, school. And I, you know, I'm facetious where I say I wasn't paying attention to the teacher and I was drawing. But yeah. it's not the case. If you're a doodler like I am, you know that you're, you're, you can repeat back verbatim what someone just said to you. Exactly. Um, um, because you are concentrating. Yeah. But you have this very interesting innate talent, let's say, to create while that's taking place. Yeah. Um, which is hard to explain for someone who would have to spend so much concentration just on the drawing. Yeah. Right. But when it's done and you look at it, there's something of yourself in it. You, here you are. You said, that, you know, Novo Pasta today is too, close to 280 people. Um, certainly you've got your, you know, your, um, your uh, I don't want to say cabinet, but your core leadership team that you're constantly interacting with and so forth. But what, what would you say, you know, that your leadership style is like? You know, someone said to me that, you know, Carl has really great vision, but because I've done almost every aspect, not to the level that it's being done today by almost everyone in the company, because it started from scratch, mm -hmm. zero, um, my, it's, I have an acute understanding of each position. For example, from sweeping the floor to um, breaking eggs to make the pasta, to cracking garlic, to making pasta, to fixing the equipment, to delivering the product, to um, being on the receivable side in the old days, we'd say collect the money, um, to um, have to concern yourself with payables, uh, to um, source ingredients, uh, to knock on the door and do sales looking for customers, uh, to do the end of the day accounting, uh, to line up later on the logistics of getting your finished product from your place to the end user or the distribution center or the restaurant, whatever it happened to be. Um, I'm able to work with that, the, each company at a level, the, each individual, I should say, each um, associate employee, hate to say employee, it just seems strange, but um, a partner or whatever you want to call that at Nuovo and mm -hmm. empathize with what they're going through. Um, because I've done that at some point, certainly not to the level that it's being done today, but, um, but at a level. Um, and I say to, we have a, a really robust board of directors, which includes a couple of CEOs, um, retired CEOs from major companies. And I'm talking about major consumer product, good companies, brands that are on the shelf that I won't talk about right now, um, that people would 
that do recognize and have them in their homes, CEOs that are on our advisory board, board of uh, directors. And I tell them that I'm not a CEO because I'm not, I'm not a classically trained CEO. You know, I'm a founder um, CEO. I, I don't even like the word entrepreneur, except the way that it was described to me that entrepreneurs are a spirit mm. energy, not somebody who owns a business. Um, because if they are a spirit and energy, and then we hear the word I'm a, they, that, that someone is a chronic entrepreneur or a serial entrepreneur, that means they're constantly opening up businesses. And maybe they do have the entrepreneurial spirit, but I certainly don't have that spirit. Um, I am here involved in this company, um, and I don't think I could do the same in any other company. I really don't. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. You talk about the, uh, you know, the spirit, right? Because I, I think of entrepreneurs, and I have such great admiration and respect for for entrepreneurs because you take, you take a vision and make it real, right? And and on paper, you know, I guess that's you know, start a business, but it's so much more than that. You know, you're starting something that puts food on the table for the people that are a part of that with you whether it's, you know, two people or 2,000. So I'm going to remember that. That's a very great, great, great point you make. With all of that leadership, what would you say is your biggest challenge as a leader? And how do you overcome it? You know, it's interesting. The biggest challenge challenge now is um, the continual growth and the convincing if convinces the word of the team that what got us here, although is admirable, won't get us there. And I don't know if I recounted this to you earlier, but I've been recounting it through the course of the day. I was at a, a soccer tournament with my son over the weekend. And um, we um, went to mass um, after one of the games at, at five o'clock. And as I was leaving this church, there was a table that I observed. And this table was sort of a picnic table that was crafted and built around what at one point was probably an eight inch tree that was going to give it some sort of shade for anyone that sat under it. Mm. But when I observed it, it was probably 15 years after the uh, table was crafted where now it was split in half and was lopsided. As a matter of fact, there were no benches there because no one would be able to sit near it where that eight inch tree grew into an 18 inch in diameter tree and split the table um, where it was connected on one side, but almost looked like a V at this point with one end uplifted by about 10 inches over the other. And I realized the metaphor that I was looking at that what worked at a certain point in time didn't any longer because as a business grows, a management model must grow with it. Mm -hmm. And growth means change. Um, and change is something that is all anathema to all of us. Yeah, we like what we know, the good old days, right? Um, 
and we have to embrace the only constant which is change yeah and um i think that's the biggest i'm not too sure exactly the question but i was answering that question with with that metaphor yeah which is why what's the biggest challenge today and i think it is convincing the team one that we need to grow because when you're standing still you're going backwards um in my mind, you know, Apple is one of the one of the greatest corporations, and certainly today they're a lot more valuable than before Steve Jobs um, passed away. I mean, that's no debating that it's market cap. But one might say that it's not the same company because they're on version whatever they are, fifteen of their iPhone, where I think the entrepreneurial spirit that was running that company might have had something else by now of what that company became because if you remember it was it went from um a, a mac to um a an iphone yeah and what would that iphone be today if he had still been alive so what i'm saying is that um to for a company to to see the vision and realize that it has I use the Wayne Gretzky quote, um, you have to skate to where the puck is going. And um, I'm always looking from the perspective of where's that puck going. And uh, I have to be aware of the fact that the team is really focused on getting done today, what needs to get done today, as opposed to what needs to get done, not tomorrow, but next year. If you could go back in time and meet 21-year-old Carl, knowing what you know now, what kind of advice would you give him? Never panic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because in good times and bad, this too shall pass. Mm. And to be in the moment and embrace the moment experiences are what makes an expert it's the same root word so be observant even when you think something's a bad experience because it's going to make you a better expert in the business world or i I, I think just in life in general but more so I, i i think in the you know in the the business world the f word failure is you know it's big and scary nobody wants to fail right i don't think anybody really truly sets out to to screw up so bad um but you know there is this notion or or it's being talked about more and more that that failure really is is a teacher and so my question about that is what, what what's a favorite failure of yours and what i mean by that is something you were so sure about that it was going to work but it failed, and what'd you learn from it? Hmm. Well, I first of all, I think you have to define failure, and my version of failure is, and I say to people, you only fail when you quit. Mm. So what is it, did we quit? Um, I'll give you a small example of one. We had uh, come up with focaccia at one point. 
as an ancillary product line to our existing customer base, which was the restaurant trade at that point. And we had some really good ones. We had some very flavorful mushroom, onion, and gruyere um, focaccias and so many others. We had at least half a dozen of them. Everybody loved them. Um, it was difficult to, to sample them to the marketplace. It was difficult to, to automate the production of it. And we took our eye off of our core competency, mm. which was good pasta making. So the failure was the giving up of, of that, but it strengthened the concept of today, when I take a look at opportunities, quote unquote, is it part of our core competency? And is it moving in the direction of where we want to be? Um, so I think that was a key fundamental failure. But if you continue to pursue what you're doing um, and your core competency and you don't give up um, and there'll be a lot of challenges and there'll be a lot of reasons why I use the word excuses, why you gave up, um, then that's a failure. And, and and to your point, you have to learn from your failures. So, yeah, that's a great story. Um, and and I'm always interested in what other folks are reading. If you have one book recommendation for our audience and folks out there to read, what what is the book? You know, it's interesting. I've been asked that question before, and uh, I, I use Steve Jobs' um, analogy before. And when Steve Jobs passed away, he orchestrated, before he passed away, obviously, his own funeral because he knew he was going to pass. And he invited the people that he wanted to attend his funeral to be there. And they all left with one thing. They left with a box. And inside that box uh, was something. And when they got home, they opened the box to see what it was. And it was all the same thing. And it was a book. Mm. The book was called Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda, who was a um, spiritual leader who came to the U.S. in the 1920s, finally settled in California, where he had traveled not only the U.S., but the world, and taught people um, something in his book. And I'll leave it for those to read what he taught them. But quite frankly, um, if it was good enough for uh, Steve Jobs to recommend to business leaders, uh, it was good enough for me to pick up and read, and I did. And um, I strongly suggest to anybody that wants to be a mover in this world of any manner, especially a business um, entrepreneur, let's say, uh, to read that book. Good recommendation, and I'm gonna check it out as well. And Final question. Uh, there's a show on NPR that I listen to that does ask this question. So I'm stealing it because um, I think it's a great question and it's inspired me. So I'm going to ask the same thing. How much of your success has been pure luck and how much of it is from your leadership and intelligence? That's a good question. Um, I, I've heard the phrase that luck doesn't sit on a slumped shoulder. Mm. So, um, I think there's a 50, 50 
there. And in order to embrace luck when it's there, you've got to be prepared for it. Um, when Franco Harris caught a tipped ball and ran for a touchdown, he wouldn't have been able to run for that touchdown unless he practiced his skills every day in, as a running back in professional football. But when the luck of that tip allowed the ball to be caught, even though skillfully caught, that luck based on his talent and training, which evolves into skill, allowed him to run for the Super Bowl winning touchdown, which gained the term the immaculate reception. Yeah. So I say it's 50-50. Yeah. I, I, I don't remember that, but like the world or business can can learn from from sports, right? That's a great analogy of look, being prepared and when that lucky moment happens, um you've you've trained for it and you're ready to take it on. Exactly. Exactly. Anything you'd like to close with or say? Um, I would say to follow your dream to anyone that has a dream. Um, because dreams come true. Um, but you have to make it come true. And the strong force that's inside of you, um, if you are unrelenting, uh, will allow you to accomplish any goal that you set out to do, provided that it not only benefits you, but many, many, many others that either you will or won't encounter. So that has to be part of it. And that's the last little piece I'd like to add, except for a thank you very much. And I'm so very grateful that you've given me the opportunity, Derek, um, to talk about Nuovo and my views on business. Well, it's it's been super inspiring, Carl, and, and the, the pleasure and honor is all mine. So thank you very much for being a part of this. Thank you. I truly appreciate it once again, Derek. And there we have it. That's Carl Zwinelli and his inspiring story of Nuovo Pasta. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. Now to learn more about Carl and all things Nuovo, including some delicious recipes that you can make right at home, please visit NuovoPasta.com. Upfront is brought to you by Mason. Creatively obsessed and fixated on results, Mason leverages technology, entertainment, design, and culture to create bold, fearless ideas. It's time to make your brand more valuable. Challenge accepted. To learn more, visit mason23.com and you can send me an email, hello at mason23.com. Until the next time, we'll see you. Take care.